friends. This is Taylor. I am here this week with a special surprise. So it's holiday week, Halloween, and we are here with the one and only highlighted Mr. Mattin. Mattin, welcome. Well, hey, everybody. It's uh, fun to be on here today. I'm filling in for the Scissor, a.k.a. Brittany. She's got a lot going on. So I get to hop in for this rather fun and exciting Halloween-oriented psych mental health episode. Yeah, so as he mentioned, um, Halloween time, holiday is always crazy for a mommy, especially a mommy who has a little bit older kids. Our baby is still just a cute little slug. So um, we he's a sausage, it would... a little cute, baby as I burrito, say, because he's Latin. Sausage. He's <laughs> Latin. He's a burrito. <laughs> we get this all the time. Um, yeah, so we just thought we would highlight Mattin because he is here all the time. Mattin has a background in psychology. He actually got his degree from BYU. We both went there um, in psychology. So we both actually got the same degree, which is hilarious. And we didn't meet each other till later in life, which is even funnier to me because we crossed over. Could, could have passed by each other. Who knows? Well, before we dive into the thick of it, as you guys know, we're always pushing just individuals to listen and watch and whatnot. So uh, continue to check us out on Instagram. Uh, we're also on Pinterest. We're starting to put some content up on YouTube. So if you'd like to actually watch the beautiful face of not really me, but Taylor and Brittany and see their jovial faces as they're laughing about their lives and what they're talking about, um, you can start to watch that simulcast on YouTube. Uh, just search Scissors. Um, and then obviously continue to check the content out on Instagram. Uh, things got a little wonky uh, this past week, but we're going to be uh, back to the regular um, and a lot of fun content, lots of COA content uh, upcoming as well, especially during the Halloween week. Uh, he has worn his costumes. If you haven't seen some of them, uh, definitely encourage you to check out uh, Instagram especially. But we appreciate you guys uh, watching and listening. Uh, make sure you hit that follow, like, or subscribe button um, wherever you listen to the podcast on social media as well. And we really appreciate um, all that you've done for us. And if you're a new listener, uh, especially from the yoga class that Taylor was a part of, we appreciate you and all the suggestions that you've given us. We have some really cool content that will be coming down the line. All right. So if you guys didn't notice, Mattson is a pro. That's why we pulled him in last minute because um, he's been doing his own podcast and he had it and he recently just quit so he could have me do one. So I am new. He is a vet and it's fun to have him on. Um, and Koa has fabulous costumes. So you definitely need to look at him because he's very cute. He's going to be matching pumpkins with Banks. I'm very excited. I need to just note that one for you. Check out Instagram. You'll see it. This would be so cute, guys. All right. So we are, I love Halloween. I have always like liked this holiday. I think it's because I like fall and just everything that goes with it. Not necessarily Halloween. I am a big wimp. So it's kind of funny because we chose to do creepy case studies today, which we've been really excited about this, me and Britt and, and Mattson when we were like researching and talking about this subject. Um, and I definitely was like, well, I don't even like scary things, but I'm getting braver being married and being a mom. I've noticed I am braver killing spiders now and handling scary things. So we're going to talk about some of the creepy stuff today. Um, so Matson, do you remember like in your degree learning all these case studies? Uh Yes and no. Actually, I, the, where I remember it even more so is in high school and AP psychology. Uh, a lot of no these, we, we talked about some of these in college too, but I think it got drowned out by some of the other monotony of uh, um, some of the classes I had to take. But I remember all these and some of them quite well, and they're pretty iconic and really interesting. Madsen, what was your least favorite class? Oh, my least favorite class. It was the one about all the... Test taking, where you had to make tests. 
No, I was, I mean, it's pretty good at that. I didn't I enjoy it that, that much, but it was like the historical significance of psychology. I had a teacher that was just, <gasps> it was, it sucked. No, this is where I'm like, no, that's the good stuff. So we're going to kind of dive into that today, actually, which I will make it fun for you. I had to go to eat. I had to go to like three separate study reviews for each test because it was that insane. So it sucked. What? Yeah. I didn't even know who you took, babe. But so I love the psych stuff and I love the history of psych because you can really see how societal pressures and societal thoughts on things really shaped how we became who we became in our understanding of mental health and application of it, how we actually could help serve people. And you look at the timeline of things. I feel like Halloween was established in really a holiday more in the early 1900s, right? Like, I know it's All Hallows' Eve. I know the history of it. It comes from, like, Dia de los Muertos. Guys, I should be better at saying these words. Um, which is Day of the Dead in Mexico, where they're celebrating ancestors coming back. Have you seen Coco? That kind of show. That's also from, like, um, pagan holidays, All Hallows' Eve, things like that. So it has, like, an origin. Yes, honey. Chat GPT. Love it. You guys haven't <laughs> used it. Guys, I hear Halloween. Known as All Hallows Eve dates back to about 2,000 years ago from ancient Celtic festivals known as Samhain, pronounced so in. So thank goodness for the pronunciation there. Um, so it's actually super old, and it's a, it's mm-hmm. about believing that the ghosts of the dead return to the earth. And then um, in the 8th century, Pope Gregory III um, designated November 1st to honor all saints, as you were kind of talking about. And then... Halloween is largely a European holiday and the traditions were brought over by immigrants to America. Um, and then it just became a lot more mainstream popularized as we know today. How did, how did costumes get pulled into this one? Um, the tradition for trick or treating, for example, is thought to have been derived from the old Irish and Scottish practice of guising during sewing oh. where young people go door to door to collect food and money. So I think it's just a, that makes sense. Broader application of that. Yeah. you. But it's interesting. I think history is fascinating where you see the development of where people are at in the period of time. Like 2,000 years ago, that makes sense to me with the ritual they had then and how it got developed over time. And I feel like nowadays the application is you get a bunch of candy and you get the crap scared out of you. Like any arguments? I mean, the candy aspect, but I think the other thing you're forgetting is you watch a lot of movies that make you feel nostalgic is something else I'd say Halloween Reminds yeah, me a lot of. like you get you get scared, right? With the Halloween movies, a lot of them. I like the sweet ones. Matt's and made fun of me for watching like Casper the Friendly Ghost and Hocus Pocus. But I never watch the scary ones. I always watch the sweet ones. Well, I don't, I'm not a scary movie person, but I think you have to pay homage to what it's deeply rooted in. And, and okay, why? Get yourself a little bit on the edge. Like explain this to me. Why? I don't know. I mean, it's just what the holiday is about. It's about being scared and slightly uncomfortable, but also being that way with your friends or your loved ones. Um, and it's just been something I've I've always appreciated about it. We have a very different experience with this holiday. So I do think it's fascinating having you on here because we grew up different, obviously. But I think that's interesting because mine was like the cutesy side of it and the sweet side and all that stuff. And yours was the Let's but go scare kids in mass. Yeah. I mean, it had nothing to really do with my family. Like I I stopped trick-or-treating at the age of, it was either 12 or 13. And I looked forward to, my dad had this super crispy, like human looking mask with like a, a blood gouge on it that I put on. That I put on like a, a graduation gown with a hood. And I sat out there with a, um, a bowl of candy at like, as like a statue and see if people thought I was real or not. And then I'd scare them. And I did that for a couple of years. And I love doing that. <laughs> Our um, poor child. <laughs> 
And so it was a lot of fun to set up and do that. And then Halloween lately, now that I'm an adult, haven't had a kid till now, it's kind of just been like you dress up, you go to a party, but lately I haven't done a lot of that. But now that I have a a son and moving forward, I think a lot of that will happen um, and I'll get much more into it again. But the psychology of Halloween, I think in terms of all the popular holidays, there's none better in terms of what Tay does in the world that it swirls in than, than Halloween. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like this is when all those psychological thrillers come out, all of these things that we're talking about today from these case studies really get highlighted. So I got to thinking about all these things that we've learned in the history of it. And I was thinking the first thing that came to my mind when I was in grad school, we had to do a case study off of a book that we read. And one of the ones I chose to do was off Nellie Bly. And have you ever heard of Nellie Bly, Matson? Mm, no, that one's not coming to recollection for me. It it really shouldn't because it's um it's not a super like common one to know of, but it was a case study that I did for grad school. And it ended up being about a woman who was a reporter in the eighteen hundreds, which is awesome, like to actually be a reporter in the eighteen hundreds as a as a female. But she was trying to understand the setting and how um people lived in insane asylums. And I don't know, Matson, you have told me some creepy stories, like haunted stories about insane asylums. So this is why this one came to my mind, which I want you to connect for me. But she ended up living here and seeing all these terrible conditions. There was one quote where it even said, like, this one woman that was next to her in this insane asylum was just praying to God to let her die because she was so cold, right? So the living conditions were absolutely just terrible, terrible living conditions. But it's interesting because as she was going through this, she realized how much people's mental health is connected to um, to all these fear stories she had been hearing, right? Like, if you look back, there's like Ichabod Crane from the 1800s too. You, do you remember that one, Headless Horseman? All these things like that where they use kind of like that mental health part to create some form of drama and fear in people in order to like perpetuate this kind of thrill, I guess. And that's where she was trying to kind of connect is like, is this insane asylum actually do like doing all these things first off? And then is it kind of like feeding into some of those stories that are coming out? Like are people creating these stories? Because you hear like on the outside people talking about all these terrible stories and she didn't know if it was just like a hoax or if it was actually the reality. In this case, it was actually the reality. So when Matt and I were dating, Matt was like, hey, let's go on a hike to this one place. I was like, I love hiking. Let's go on a hike, right? He ends up telling me it's an insane asylum for like like a graveyard insane asylum and it's haunted. It was converted into a park and it's beautiful and I wanted to stay there until the after hours just to see what it felt like. Tay said no, we didn't do it. We're Why still do you together. think I said no? We are still together. You're not adventurous. No! Ooh, dissing me over <laughs> I don't think so. It's creepy. I was I was disappointed. We're still, we, I think we're gonna try it in the future. No, we're not gonna know. try it. You also told me about Bunny Hill, and we're not trying that. Tell them about Bunny, Bunny Man's Hill. Bridge. Sure, tell them about that one. Uh, just there's a. I grew up in Virginia, close to a town called Clifton, and there's a bridge that have railroad tracks that go over it and there was an insane asylum close by and this individual got out and they found a bunch of mutilated bunnies around and then on halloween or i think the night before halloween two individuals were hanging from this bridge in the same mutilated pattern as these bunnies um and they attributed to uh the bunny man killer uh but there was like an imitation killer afterwards as well long story short been there a few times 
you can definitely feel the aura of not a good place to be. But go with friends. It's a good time. Bad juju. Guys, I hate this kind of crap. But this is a fascinating thing is this this stuff for this season, it really does play on your mental health. And I don't know why, but there's so many things in like movies and stories based around insane asylums. And after thinking about this case study that I used or like that that biography that I used with Ellie Bly, uh, Nellie Bly, I was like, this makes a lot of sense because they were so terrible to people in there. And a lot of the stories kind of originated from there and there was reality to it. So some of the stuff you hear, there is actually reality and grounding to the things. Yeah, without her, she stayed there for 10 days, found out all the abuse, neglects, the inedible food, appalling conditions. Um, after 10 days, she came out Tons and posted her article yep. um, in the New York City, the New York world, uh, and as a book and kind of changed and got some reform to happen and made that better. But as kind of Tay was talking about, I think what's ex- interesting about this time in all the movies in, in pop culture around Halloween, it, what's interesting is that fight or flight response and then how how strength or how deep your relationships go with others when you're presented in these precarious situations is a lot of what kind of the movies show. And then the is curiosity. Is that why you want to take me to that creepy hike? I No, I wasn't. Maybe tested, I already loved you then. <laughs> was it just sounded interesting? And I think in the movies, it's that when you hear something, you kind of see something. Are you going to walk through that dark door and explore more? Or are you going to are you going to go the other way? And um, the movies are really good at kind of putting individuals in that in that circumstance. It makes me think of that Geico commercial that they were making fun of horror movies about. Uh, oh, don't go that way. <laughs> Yeah, and the girl's like, oh, where, where do we go? Like, we should run behind the, the garage with all the chainsaws and hide right there. And, like, the, the guy with the chainsaw, like, rolls his eyes. And uh, it's classic. Have you noticed, though? So I like how you, like, segued into that of the bystander effect in the horror movies. Oh, yeah, anyway, I think it's it's there. I mean, we should have your expert opinion explain to our audience what that really is. But, yes, it's prevalent. All right. So bystander effect was actually discovered in the 50s after a trial happened with a guy that um, somebody was like murdered on the streets and they couldn't understand why nobody intervened. It was a very busy street. It was very packed. And they're like, how was this not stopped? There was tons of people around to prevent this crime from happening and this terrible thing from happening. And what ended up being discovered is called the bystander effect. When you're in a larger amount of people, like a group of people, you start to think that more of the group will act up and that individual doesn't need to. So it's almost like, well, I'm in a group of 20. So one, like 19 other people are here to act up and I don't need to, but every single person has that thought process. The smaller group you're in, the less likely you're to have that thought. And I've noticed in a lot of psych movies or um, like thrillers or things like that, the bystander effect definitely happens. If you're in a group, you tend to be like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. Somebody else can intervene. Almost like we were watching Clue the other day, that old 80s movie, and you see this group of people, and one by one, people are just getting nicked off, like just murdered one by one. And you're like, how do people not like stop this and actually like stay as a group? And then they keep breaking up and people keep getting murdered and all these other things. It's because people think that somebody else in the group is going to step up. Does that yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting facts here that you, you've kind of called it. So originally, uh, it happened to Kitty Genovese in New York City back in 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that could have interviewed, no one called the police. So she died. Uh, well, but yeah, I was a girl. Sorry. 
Yeah. So what's interesting about all this is Tate talked a lot about these things, but to, to kind of drill it down further, one of the biggest things is the diffusion of responsibility, What she just talked about when there's um, many people present, you're all kind of individuals were just less likely to take an action. Um, and so it kind of rolls into what they call pluralistic ignorance, uh, which is another effect beyond that is people um, look to others to see how they should react in ambiguous situations. Think about yourself in just normal day-to-day circumstances, if you're not confident in something and you're in a group, you're probably looking for someone else to like raise your hand in class or 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 be the volunteer guinea pig. But if it's a life or death or scary situation, how much more are you just going to be looking at someone else to be like, please, like, mm-hmm. please do this. I, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, so like, and again, the more people, the less help is given because again, the more people you're going to look to someone else. What's interesting about this, though, is training can overcome the bystander effect. So when you think about emergency responders um, and individuals like this, they are trained about these situations to be able to respond in a more prepared manner. And but that's, that's also with an authoritative position, which is another thing we were going to talk about from the Milgram's experiment, as well as in Bardo's. And Bardo's we're saving for the very end, though, because that's my absolute favorite. But we can go into the Milgram's of, you're right, authority will often trump people's thought that they are not important. The more that you feel like you're important and validated, the the more you will act and the more you will be in charge. So people who have training like that actually have validity to them. They have authority. So they will act more than people who don't. Yeah. And, but I, I think beyond that, they talk about um, that I've seen as well as cultures and communities that are more tight knit, the bystander effect has a drastically less effect. So collective cultures in? Yeah, so like if you, let's just say you live in a cul-de-sac. If you actually knew your neighbors and something happened, so mm-hmm. you're more likely to actually step up and do something because you just have that tight-knit community. And so they, mm-hmm. they say that's a big factor in today's culture where we're so removed from each other with our devices, no real incentive to get to know the individuals on our left and right. The bystander effect has only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, isn't it? Anything else from bystander effect? Or do we want to slide into that authoritative position? I mean, to link it to the movies, think about how many uh, horror movies you've seen. It's all about someone is getting uh, attempted murder. Or they're, they're I in don't watch situation. horror movies. They're in a bad situation and, and they have a choice to make. Do I help this person? Do I not? Uh, we're in a group. Who's going to help mm-hmm. them? And, and they half, always half, sacrifice them. Yeah. Half the time that someone that helps them is like the token death uh, that happens next. So they play on that. Uh, quite a bit and and put people in those situations and and see their how, how they're going to respond to it unfortunately for them most of the time they die i think it's interesting too because the psychological thing usually the person that's like hunting somebody in the psych movies or things like that are the people that like the the bad guy right are the people that want authority or power control something like that and they're exerting it over somebody and it's interesting because in the movies you always hear people like, I would never do something like that. But actually in real life, there was a study that people did turn into those monsters. And it's fascinating. We have two of them at different times where people turned into those monsters. And that's actually the first one we're going to talk about is the Milgram experiment. So before, quickly before we jump into that, just to, to wrap a bow on this, though, what's the implications for maybe this today? I think where you'd see this more often uh, than anything is like uh, cyberbullying. Um, so as Tay talked about mm-hmm. with social media in our, our previous episodes, and they're going to finish on one the week after this, is when you see cyberbullying happening because of the bystander effect, you know that, hey, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that 
are could see this or it's something more related to your high school or your friend group, you're going to be like, ah, like someone else has got it or like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. That happens all the time. We're, we're a part of that, maybe not every day, but weekly or, or monthly. And so ask yourself, hey, if I know this individual, maybe I should just reach out, send them a text, like let them know that they're loved, they're appreciated, whatever it is. Don't assume someone else is going to do that. And I mm-hmm. think even further to that, maybe it's not necessarily the bystander effect, but if you feel like you need to reach out to a past friend or, or a sibling or a family member because they're going through something or you just want to say something nice, do it. Because it's almost like the bystander effect. You're like, oh, like, no, like they're fine. Someone else is doing it. I did it two months ago or whatever. Like, just reach out, connect, because that's really what the bystander effect is about. The more we can connect, the the better that we're going to be. Yeah. Sometimes the bystander effect actually happens to my clients and we have to remind them in session that's not like because people are choosing to ignore you or you're not important. It's because of this effect where you think like other people around you think that somebody else is going to do it. You don't need it. Like everything you were just saying. And that's where if you can realize back for yourself, it's not about you. It's about how people are interpreting the situation and thinking that they're not needed. It helps a lot. It doesn't make you feel like you're as like lesser about undervalued. All right. Where are we going next? I'm not going to lie, guys. The flow is so different than Cicer. So just bear with us. Um, not that you're not great, babe. But uh, Yeah. What does that say about me? Well, I, I ramble with Cicer all day. So, you know, we're used to rambling. Uh, it's two people that have severe ADHD and yeah, I am a little bit more focused. He's so focused. He <laughs> needs like the list and I go through and I'm like, I got, that's <sighs> fine. All right. So like I was saying before in the shows, have you noticed that there's always a villain and there's always a person that wants the power. And that's where we oftentimes will say, Oh, I can never be that way. I can never actually like do something like that and exert such power over people in such a terrible way. But studies showed, so all these guys, I don't know what it was. Well, I do know what it was. There was no boards before, I think, the 70s. And some and these studies are the reasons why there are now boards to review research that people are doing, clinicians are doing, in order to make sure that everything is ethical. Because there was so many unethical things in the 60s, 70s, and I want to say early 80s. I don't remember the exact time when the board got set up. Matson's going to look it up, I guarantee it. Um, but the as the time flow went on, they realized that these things were really messing people up. So yes, they were getting answers. Yes, they were very iconic for a reason, but they came at a very significant cost to people's well-being in their own individual lives. So the boards are no longer letting people do that, which is good for um, us, but these are fascinating. So it's called the Milgram Experiment. Masson, what is the Milgram Experiment, my love? Yeah. So Stanley Milgram, really famous uh, in the field of psychology. I'd say most of these we're going to talk about. You guys have heard of them at some they're point. Iconic. And, yeah, they're, they're iconic. So this one was conducted in ni- the 1960s. And it's really about understanding obedience to authority. And so where his thought process really came from is he wanted the, this experiment was inspired by the Holocaust. Um, Milgram, he was a Jewish psychologist. So you think back to World War II. Uh, what happened with the Holocaust, with uh, the Nazi regime, regime, um, and the horrif- horrific acts that were kind of um, brought about to them, and so he wanted to understand um, to test how far individuals would go in obeying uh, orders from an authoritative figure. Um, and so to do this, he set up as Taylor described. So it's about um, setting up a teacher and a learner. 
Uh, so the teachers were instructed uh, to administer the shock to the learners. The learners, uh, they were actors. Um, they were asked a question by the teacher, and every time they got an answer wrong, they were to be shocked. What the teacher didn't know is the learner, the actor, uh, was not actually being shocked. Thank goodness uh, that we're not trying to actually kill people. But the teacher didn't know that. They thought it was 100% hundo P, as I like to say, and I guess heard that before. Uh, it was real. Uh, and so what we found, uh, the results to this experiment were very shocking. Uh, roughly around 65% of the individuals administered the experiment's final volt level. And I'm curious, Tay, how... Uh, what do you think that final voltage was? I'll give you it a hint. Was around, it's less than a thousand because that's insane. It was around four or five hundred. Wow, my wife is smart. Four hundred and fifty <laughs> to be exact. Um, and then all of the individuals administered shocks of at least three hundred volts. I need mm-hmm. to look up how much voltage it takes to actually kill a human being. Don't worry, I'll do that in a second. <clears throat> I'm sure it fried the humans if this it was were an real. extreme amount. Like they when they got to the 450, it was like excruciating pain or it should have been. So the actors were like screaming, writhing. People were very clearly, but it was interesting because the the there was no threat. There was no like the the researchers standing next to the people doing the actual act of turning the dial up. There was no like, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. It was simply, you must continue with this. You have gone this far. You must continue. And that's all they said. It was a very simple prompt of you are to do your role. But the pressure that they felt and the psychological pressure of I must fulfill this role and I have this authoritative figure over me ended up causing people to do things that they couldn't even believe afterwards that they did. And it's almost like they went into like dissociation, it sounds like. Like they just kind of blocked out what they were doing, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's um I'm trying to see what else I wanted to um what else I what did I want to say here? Oh, so when the learner was in the same room as the teacher, uh, their discomfort was more visible and their obedience rates dropped. Uh, when so that ex- meant when the learner, meaning the person getting shocked, was in the room with the person shocking them, they were very like visibly dis- like uncomfortable. But when they were separated, it was like more that they would turn it up. Yeah, so I think that's it's really interesting to see. And I the more up- distant that you do the pain how much the the voltage like somewhere between 100 to 150 volts uh, turned into amps certainly could kill a human being so i mean we're we're far beyond that so i, I mean those are eye catching numbers in terms of the study that human beings uh, will certainly go far above and beyond um when they're dissociated from the pain that someone is actually experiencing especially if they don't know who that individual is and what they're doing. They're just going to do it because they're told. Well, did you ever hear about in the two thousands, there was this guy calling around pretending to be police officers. I watched a documentary cause I'm I, I, true crime people. Um, and <laughs> he was calling all these fast food chains and he would tap into their video cameras in the manager's office so he could watch it. And he would have them do very profane, uh, like sexual acts. On oh, I watched this. This is so Taylor watches dumb stuff. Uh, okay. Anyways, it was it's totally proving what Milligram was saying of the authority. And people were doing all these acts. They're like, I had no idea that I would like I would never even do these pe- things, right? 
And they ended up doing it because they thought it was a police officer, a person in power telling them they had to do it. And that's the fascinating thing. If you see all these shows this time of year where people are doing all these things, and you're like, this is just in the movies. This isn't really going to happen. And there's real life studies and case studies and actual events of people doing these things. Dissing on me. Like, I can diss on you. You watch Star Wars all the time. People like Star Wars. Well, people like true crime. The problem, people, is when this person being me leaves, Taylor is afraid. Sometimes like, won't we? And she's like, I've been watching true crime stuff. Like, you need to turn that off because you're not going to be able to sleep in that shit. She has to bring sweet baby Ko in the room and is just like on high alert. I'm like, this stuff is just not good to watch. So I call it dumb because it's not helpful for her. It's fine, guys. Everybody, we're all we're we're uh, in recovery from this one. It's fine. So, Tay, for for your patience and for people listening, like, what is obviously people are not going to be in this study. It is unethical to extent because it definitely caused some emotional and mental scar for, for the teachers. But what does this mean for for people that you counsel and for individuals like us that are just listening? Well, I think it's a fascinating one for obedience wise. Uh, we always say obey your elders, respect your elders, all these things. And I think with my clients, especially teens, I'm constantly saying there is a level of human respect and interaction that you need to do. It's also okay to ask yourself, what are they asking and is it okay or not okay? And that's where, you know, the line of like, don't just take face value of this person is over me. This person is ahead of me. I'm not saying like I'm telling all my teens to be like crazy wild teens and rebel. I'm just saying know what the motivation and what you're doing and why you're doing things and actually build that ability to assess if this is good or not for you. And that's where I think teens will often say, well, this peer group is more popular than me. I want to be a part of this peer group. And then they get into this like terrible situation, cyberbullying, harassment issues, sending nude pictures, whatever it is. And they're like, well, I don't even know how I got in the situation. You got in the situation because you didn't actually assess why you were doing what you're doing. And you were just trying to get into a group that you thought had more power than you. And that's where you got to kind of um, watch yourself on some of these things. It's fascinating. You're just staring at me now. (laughs) Just soaking it in. I'm getting therapized right now, everybody. Do you have some power issues? Banks is over you. Him and his bottles. Banks and Koa. I'm I'm the third. Koa makes demands. He likes pets. He does. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about now. Time to debate. Should we go into Zimbardo's? Let's do it. This one's associated a lot with the um, Milgram one. And this one I'm going to explain because, guys, I think this one is fascinating. I thought it's fascinating since I first heard about it. I loved hearing about these things. I don't know why they get me so excited, but I think it's because you really get a lot of answers to um people and understanding that human nature is a certain way and we always have these arguments is this nature versus nurture meaning is this how you're born or is it how you're raised and i think it's a combination of we have every one of us has this predisposition this pre likelihood of something going to be happening but based off our life experiences positions that we're in powers of control all these things like everything we've been talking about before the bystander effect what situation you're in whether or not you feel connected to people um, from the Milgram one, do you feel like somebody's over you telling what to do? Do you feel like you're threatened? Do you feel like you need to be a part of something or not a part of something? All of this leads into the choices that we make each and every day. And it shifts the behavior that we have and the actions that we do. So it's fascinating. This study happened at Stanford in the 70s, I want to say. Matson, is that correct? I'm sure you, you looked it up. You are correct. 1971 to be exact. 
look at me. I learned about all these things like, you know, like seven years ago, hon, maybe eight, and I know it still. Anyways, so so in the 70s, and again, the board is not set up, so this would never happen nowadays, people. But he got a group of college students together, and they set a situation up that was literally like a prison where there was inmates and there was guards. And he just kind of randomly picked them. So there was no like, this is your background or anything like that. It was simply... This is a role you got assigned. And they were assigned to live there for a period of time. It was actually supposed to be like a month. And this ended up getting cut short. Two weeks. It was supposed to be two weeks and it only lasted. Okay, so it wasn't supposed to be a month. It lasted six days. supposed to be two weeks. Things got cray-cray. So that is significant for it only lasts six days instead of two weeks, right? I kept thinking it was months, but it's apparently weeks. Anyways, so they were in this situation. They were supposed to treat him like inmates. They had specific rules. Matson, do you have the rules pulled up? Uh, no, but I can pull them. Keep going. Um, I don't think they could do things like you can't harm them or anything like that. So they had things where they would make inmates do push-ups as punishment, stand up for hours, be in the cold. Things that weren't necessarily like physical harm, but psychologically extremely damaging. They would do demeaning things with um, name-calling I want to say they had the inmates do some things to each other. I don't remember what they had specifically. But as time went on, they started to notice the guards got meaner and meaner. With the power that they had, they became more and more cruel. Yes, honey. Yes, I can fill you in a little bit more. So they were arrested at their homes without prior notice uh, by actual local police officers. Oh, wow. Uh, they, made it, they, they made it legit. At, and booked at a police station. Uh, so it was done to make it feel real, uh, inducing a lot of fear and uncertainty. Upon arrival, they were stripped, searched, and deloused, uh, dehumanizing them. Uh, they were assigned a number. That was their primary identity. Uh, they required to wear a smock with their number on it, no underwear allowed. Um, they had to wear a chain around one ankle as a constant reminder of imprisonment. Not allowed to leave the prison unless they were granted parole or the experiment ended. They had a daily routine, like cleaning their cells, eating meals, participating in roll calls, uh, couldn't refer to themselves by the real names, just their numbers. Uh, not allowed to have any personal items and such. Um, punishments for r- rule violations were physical exercise, probably those push-ups, solitary confinement, loss of privileges. Uh, they were subject to frequent counts, like roll call basically. Uh, it could have been at any times disrupting their sleep patterns and things like this. So, whoa. It was intense. And the crazy thing is the guards made it worse they would torment these prisoners every day day after day i remember seeing an interview of a prisoner versus a guard and they were literally in the same college class together and he was just sobbing saying how could you do this you knew me before you treated me like not even a human and this was only six days guys So this is where the experiment was trying to look at the authoritative relationship. And what it really found out was a true nature versus nurture authoritative power role that we have in our lives and how that can play into changing our behaviors and how we exert that over people. And the fascinating thing about the study is that it's one that we refer to back all the time in the psych world of understanding nature versus nurture and how people really do start to show certain things about themselves it did do a lot of damage though to people that participated in it any comments honey yeah i get the damage aspect but i mean i know we have to have a board and do things ethically but this is a hallmark study and i hate to say it but you 
fortunately and unfortunately, we learned a lot about uh, humans in this. And yeah, we have to have guidelines and that's why we do things in the right way. But it wouldn't have happened unless things were kind of more wild, wild west with this. Thankfully, no one was hurt in the end. But um, I think it, it talks about kind of the the de-individualization of individuals. Uh, you can lean into your role real quick and dehumanize yourself, um, how we conform into roles rather quickly when we don't necessarily have to. We just decide to. The impact of perceived power uh, happens all the time. People get power off of money. Uh, Did you get this from ChatGPT? No, I know some of this, but I'm also commenting on some of this from ChatGPT. I was um, like, you have very good words here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. from ChatGPT. Uh, the individualization <laughs> came from ChatGPT. I was like, imagine you don't talk like this. <laughs> hey, I'm sounding so smart right you now. You sound so smart, um, my love. But so what we're saying, people, is do you need a therapist or you just need ChatGPT? So, um, hey, that, hey, this is what puts food in your mouth, honey. <laughs> I have a job. Um but I think the last thing is like the need for checks and balances. But what I think is really interesting about this at the end of the day is things can happen quickly in life. And what's really important, something I tell Tan myself all the time is we need to take time just as individuals and as a family to kind of process things and step back. And so I'm really big on on meditation and trying to think through some things. And sometimes I'm really bad at it because we're just in the moment. We're leaning into it. We, we get scared. Uh, we overestimate whatever it may be. And I think this experiment shows a lot of that, that we are quick to conform, quick to feel like we are entitled to something. And sometimes we need to take a step back and take a breather and reapproach the situation. Because in this experiment, if Zimbardo had given each of them an hour to process things, especially the, uh, the prison guards, I'm confident they'd be like, oh my gosh, like what happened to me today? What happened to me two days ago? This isn't me. I, we got to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too, because you can see it throughout history of how genocides are created, how terrible wars are created, how people are dehumanized. And then it's all through the same vein of thought process, right? Everything you just named is the exact same way that we have led to terrible events happening in history throughout time. And that's where it's almost like you can see how that's the damaging of bullying, cyberbullying. If we, if we take it in micro, not like big, but like on tiny things of our lives, it's going to affect us in big ways. If you don't actually realize how am I conforming? How am I not? A lot of this stuff is like discovering intentionality. I don't know if I fully agree with you on that. It was worth it. I don't know if it was worth it because you can see it in other ways. It was an accidental stumble upon. It's a fascinating study, but I don't know if it was fully worth it for us because it did really damage those people. So, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was just, that, that's the mommy therapist coming at me. Is our last one, are we doing Little Albert? Guys, this one was sad and Matson told me we should do it. And I don't like it because it was to a nine-month-old. Little Albert. We have a two-month-old and just feels more real now i know how sad is this so poor little albert was traumatized he started at nine months old and they were looking at conditioning for classical conditioning classical conditioning is where it's uh talking about behaviorism basically the concept and that's where it's looking at behaviors and how they can be trained to create a reaction so the original example was like a dog had a bell to know when it was getting food. And every time that it was getting fed before it got fed, it would hear that bell. And you could eventually take away the food and just have the bell. 
and the dog would start salivating, be ready for his meal, even if the food was not there in front of his face. That's classical conditioning. That's starting you to be prepped for, you know, your behaviors and stuff are prepped based off a cue. So they did this, this poor little baby. He was traumatized for life. They did a thud and showed a white mouse and then it would scare him. Um, There's actually a hammer striking a steel bar. That sounds not fun. For a nine month old, like how sad is this? So he'd Continue. start crying when the this happened, obviously. And then when they removed the white rat and just did the sound, obviously he showed and exhibited the fear uh, of that. So then they went mm-hmm. further and took other objects of a similar kind of build or color. So things like a rabbit, a fur coat. They even went as far as taking old man Santa Claus with a cotton ball beard and turning him to something that this poor baby feared. What's scary to think about is what did little Albert, when he was like 10 years old, feel about Christmas? Because I'm sure he didn't want Santa Claus to come down his chimney. Yeah, That's all horrible. these things be happening to this poor little nine-month-old. So where I was kind of like, you know, the Stanford one, like we learned a ton. Maybe it was or wasn't a bad thing that happened. This one I feel horrible for because it's nine-year-old, nine, not even nine-year-old, nine-month-old. And that's just sad. Um, <laughs> really Really so sad. sad. We now, we now, we we know this in 2010. It was actually revealed who this little Albert boy was. His name was Douglas uh, Mirti, who sadly died of hydrocephalus at the age of six. Wow. So one wonders if this experiment led to his untimely death. Probably, because their spider flight system was always activated. And it was overactivated, so it probably led to a increase of cortisol level and all these other things that would have caused his body to not develop right. And that's the thing about doing some of these like fright things or scaring yourself or all these things. It's fun, but if you do it too much, it's going to send your system into a shock, just like this poor little kid. And that's why I don't go near horror movies. But what does this mean in like some real life? Because fear can be learned, Tay. So fear is an emotion. What is this so, like when you go with your patients? This is something that you probably deal with like literally on the daily because human humans are all about we react to things. And a lot of what you do as a therapist, I would what I would assume is help unpackage how are we acting the right way? Can we react in a slightly different way? Can we divert this? Um, I would imagine this had has daily implications for you. So classical conditioning is actually very useful for us to understand because it's showing us that there's neurological pathways that are teaching us to identify if something is wrong or not okay. And it actually, the more that we understand the brain and the neural pathways, it's called the amygdala. The amygdala is the fear center of our brain, and that's the one that it sorts through information. So there was actually studies done that showed people who um, had their occipital lobe damaged, meaning that they their eyes still worked, but it could no longer project into their lobe for them to be able to see things. So they couldn't see, but they could in a way, right? Their eyes were still working, but their their brain was not receiving the message. It was like a, a teleprompter wasn't working or the TV wasn't actually projecting onto the, what it should have been. And they noticed the people that had it could still navigate a room okay because their brain was intaking in different parts other information. So they said if there was a chair in the room, they would be able to avoid the chair because they knew there was danger. They knew there was an injury that could have possibly approached because their eyes saw and they told the amygdala part of your brain that something wasn't okay. So at constantly at all times, there is something telling your brain how to navigate and work. And what's happening is when we have our fear system 
triggered by something like me with my true crime shows if i like see something or hear something that's related to it that I'm automatically in panic fight or flight mode because my brain has learned previous information that it could be dangerous to me. Whether or not it actually is, my fear center is showing me that it could be dangerous, which then makes me go and react and be in fight or flight mode, calling my husband at 2 a.m. freaking out because I'm alone. Um, And that's where it's identifying for you whether or not your brain, like a lot of times I'll ask my clients every day, like, are we acting in fear or are we acting out of power? And that's where a lot of the times the answer really is they're acting out of fear. They're making this decision because they are scared. They're making a decision because they want to avoid X, Y, or Z. And they're not making the decision out of empowerment to do something. Our, our brain is constantly looking for ways to avoid that uncomfortability, to avoid that part of our brain, the amygdala being activated and actually being valid. And that's kind of what they were looking at with classical conditioning is, is there a part of your brain that is going to activate for you and warn you? Yes, there is. And then what do you do with that part? And that's where we all need to get a little better at controlling it, which controlling it is identifying why am I doing this and what is it actually about? And is it valid or not valid? Like the person that was walking around the chair, that's totally valid, right? Other things could not so much be as big of a threat. Did I answer it fully? I feel like that was a masterclass. Thank you. Did it make sense though? Yeah. Okay. The amygdala is fascinating. Just understand your why and understand, are you acting out of fear or are you acting out of strength? The real lesson here is if you get approached by psychologists and you have a young baby, just say no. Oh, yeah. No first studies. How sad was that? Banks will not be. Banks will not be a participant. No. No. They don't do that kind of stuff anymore, really, but it's really sad. It's too cute. All the studies on babies are really sad, too. I also remember one. Do you remember this one where they would look at the baby's face and the babies, like newborns, like our baby, looks to us for safety and comfort in our facial expressions, and they would have the moms remain stoic. No, no expression on their face, just stare at them and not react at all while they were crying, and they would continue to escalate in their fear the more that their mom didn't engage with them emotionally. And the minute that the mom would smile or say something back was the minute they de-escalated. I'm like, how sad for those babies when they were just like, there's no response whatsoever to their face. They would just stare at them. It's terrible. We, we got these coming out of our ears, guys. I mean, lobotomies, you know what a lobotomy is? That one was terrifying. Yeah. Ones to think that psychologists and therapists are are. Are you all good people, or should we be? Saying I, like I am not a cons- I am a consumer, not a creator. So that means I'm nice. I'm married to one, everyone. So I am living in fear right now. So that's all. I can say. <laughs> what are you scared of now? <laughs> scared of the Latina in you. I'm a little feisty. He's a little feisty sometimes, guys. So hey, you're a ginger. You could be spicy too. <laughs> I'm not making decisions out of power. I'm making them out of fear. <laughs> depends on what it is if it's you taking away my cookies or burning them it's definitely out of fear <laughs> anyways this time of year we thought it would just be fun to highlight some of the things that i mean a lot of these are around fear too so the fear and fright but also just interesting creepy case studies that have happened um for those of you that don't know lobotomies we can end on that note for you because these are real flipping creepy Masson, do you know what a lobotomy is right off the top of your head well, they what part of the brain? They is it the hippocampus? No, the front, the frontal lobe, right? So they basically just became zombies, 
yeah. at that point because they couldn't really have like cognitive thought. They would just be like there, but they had all their old reptile brain working. So they would take an ice pick, go behind yeah. the eyeballs, yeah. literally chisel through that part of your skull behind the eyeball that's protecting mm-hmm. and like kind of leading to your brain. And they would fish around with the ice pick and kill off basically your prefrontal cortex, like just murder it off because, you know, it's supposed to make people who had mental health disorders um, better. Uh, it didn't make them better. It just made them not, it made them a vegetable, you know, like that's about it because they scraped out half your brain and damaged it. So yeah, you can function about as well as a baby can. But Banks is even more cognitive than they are because he has his whole full brain. Well, that used to be like a ready, readily available treatment if needed back in the day. It was in the 50s, yeah. Yeah, and now, thankfully, not. It was in that painkiller show. I remember that guy decided that he wasn't going to make enough because it was a one-and-done lobotomy versus if he found something that would actually make people come back and buy it. So he did pharmaceuticals instead that made people living zombies off of meds. Yeah, both decisions were bad. All of it. I mean, the psych world, guys, is fascinating. So um, if you liked this kind of podcast where you can have a little more more history on the psych world and a little bit more history and background on this, let us know. It's very fascinating. Uh, but Or we, yeah. you can let us know if you did not enjoy me being on this podcast and wanted more potential laughter or giggles or random comments from scissor aka Brittany. you can let the community know as well maybe i'll make another guest appearance maybe i never will maybe i'm not wanted but behind the scenes <laughs> proud to be a part of this and very proud of my wife and thank you all for listening so don't forget again check us out on social media uh, at ohana counseling uh, you can find us on pinterest and tiktok i forgot to mention we're, we're doing all the things you are seen we doing Instagram. tiktok yeah we're on tiktok we're, do, we're, we're doing big things doing it, guys we're there. So if you want to find it, come find us. Uh, we are there. Um, and again, check out this week, especially for Koa's costumes, because there will be a lot. It is Halloween. He is doing his thing. And we appreciate you all taking the time to listen. Bye. Bye. Bye.